You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. Well, we are in our season that we're focused on the arrival of the Christ child in a manger in Bethlehem. It's a season that the church has always, well, not always, for the most of its inception called a season of Advent, that we remember the why of this season. And so we are pursuing Christ. We are preparing ourselves for his coming in this season of Advent. And today we are looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to read the whole chapter, which is verses 1 through 13. You're more than welcome to open up your Bibles. You can follow us on the screen or even on your cell phones. And so this is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have poetic or prophetic powers, And understand all the mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror, dimly, but then face to face. I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith Hope and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Jesus, we come come before you today um, just all too aware that that we don't always get this idea of love right. And so, Lord, will you sweep us away today in some fashion by your spirit that we would grow in greater love for you. And that our love for you, Lord, would overflow to love for our neighbors and our friends, the world around us. And so, God, we pray that you would use your word for its purpose today in our hearts. We love you and we pray this in your beautiful name. Amen. So today we look at 1 Corinthians, this very famous chapter in 1 Corinthians, as we look forward to Advent, to the coming of Christ 
1 Corinthians is written by the Apostle Paul. It's written somewhere around AD 55. And this chapter, chapter 13, is probably one of the most famous chapters in all the Bible. It's known as the love chapter. And it's a chapter that we read maybe at our weddings. In those times that we feel unloved, we go to this as a source of strength. These are beautiful words. You, You don't have to be a believer to love these words. In fact, most of the world would define love in its highest ethic with these words from Paul. Paul writes very beautifully, very true of what it means to love. They are universally loved words. But what makes these words truer and more beautiful, as always, and is the case with all of Scripture, is its context and in the whom that embodies them. Paul spent 18 months of his life in this city of Corinth building his church. It was by far the longest time that he spent in any city in the Mediterranean. He knows the people there. He knows its leader. But less than two years after its inception, the church is in chaos. They are dividing. There's problems in doctrine. There's quarreling. Immorality is running rampant. People are suing one another. There's lawsuits amongst each other. It's beginning to spiral out of control. And one of the chief sins of the Corinthians in this time was the sin of lovelessness. And so the issue that Paul is dealing with when we approach chapter 13 is actually the misuse of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts that God gives to us for the building up of this church. Gifts like prophecy and teaching, discernment and faith, uh, languages and tongues and wisdom, amongst other things. Gifts that God gives to his people for the building up of his people. But what happened in that time and, and is what is a very real issue in our time is the misuse of those gifts. Many of the people in that church in that day took the gifts that God had meant to bless his church and build up his body, and they misused them to build up themselves. Spiritual gifts were given to God's people to show his power and his goodness through our humility, our shared weakness, and our availability. But the church in that moment used them to build their own power and status and worth through their own effort and pride. And there is a dangerous trap that many believers can have and get into, not just those in Corinth, where we believe that maturity in faith is somehow connected to giftedness. That that is the measure of maturity. But Paul warns the church here and then that the most significant measure of maturity in Christ is our display of love. Paul says, I don't care how good you speak. I don't care how fresh and relevant your word is. I don't care how wide your understanding is. I don't care if you have faith in doses that you could move mountains. I don't care what you give to the poor or the needy. I don't even care if you would be willing to sacrifice your own life, that you would give up your own life. If you have not love, it's nothing. I am nothing. I have gained nothing. You could say it this way. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how impressive I am to others or to myself. If I have not loved, it is meaningless. I have gained nothing. If we build our lives 
on the pursuits of status and wealth and comfort and safety and influence, Paul says that we have anchored ourselves into the wrong kingdom. And we will not find reward there. Because in God's kingdom, the highest ethic is love. And I wish that I had time today in 1 Corinthians to go through each and every single one of these descriptors of this love that Paul pens. But today, what we want to tackle is to understand what they are communicating to us, and more than that, the whom they are communicating to us. We talked about this several weeks ago in a sermon around loving our enemies, that love in our language is not a helpful word. It's a junk drawer word that means lots of different things. In Greek, there are four different words for love, each with different definitions. And the word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 13 is the same word that Jesus uses in loving your enemies. It's agape. Agape love. Agape love is born not out of our emotions. It's not born out of our feelings or our familiarities or our affections, but it comes from our will and it arrives as a choice. Agape love requires faithfulness and commitment and sacrifice in that we don't expect anything in return. It's a deliberate striving for another's highest good through our willful sacrifice. It's demonstrated through our actions and not through our feelings. And so this is the kind of love that Paul is speaking about here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, one that is revealed and proven through our actions. I heard a story this week uh, of a man who was suffering from a neurological disease and a sweet gift that he gave to his wife. It's a true story. The man has passed some 20 years ago after a long battle with a degenerative neurological disease that slowly began to steal his life away. The disease robbed him of his speech, it robbed him of his fine motor skills, and eventually it robbed him of his life, slowly but surely over the course of his life. But when his speech was gone, he still had the ability to move, and one of the great joys of his life was going to the golf course. And so one day his wife picked him up from the golf course, and she noticed that he seemed a little bit more disheveled, a little bit more tired than he normally had. And after a lengthy amount of time of trying to talk to him because he can't speak and then talking to her friends, she found out that he didn't go golfing on that day. Instead, what he did is he walked, which at that point in his struggle was more of a shuffle. He shuffled two miles to a mall to buy a piece of jewelry for his wife on her birthday. But when he got there, because he couldn't speak, he couldn't communicate with people what he wanted. And he he grew frustrated and he left, not being able to buy what he desired for his bride. He didn't get his bride a new piece of jewelry on her birthday that year. But she got the knowledge of a tremendous act of love that came as a great cost to his physical strength. And that was far more precious to her than any piece of jewelry could ever be. His sacrificial act revealed his deep love for her. That story reveals the sort of description of the love that Paul is writing about. It tells us that great love can be spoken about. Deep, passionate love can be expressed in our verbiage. It can be written down. 
But real love to be expressed is proven in our actions. It's one thing to say that we love somebody. It's quite another to endure the personal cost to ourselves to prove it. And so Paul writes of this beautiful, deep, meaningful love. And it comes to us as sort of a list. He makes a list of all the ways that love can be described so that we can fully know its depth. Now, here's our tendency, right? You give me a list and what am I going to do with it? I'm going to compare myself to it. And so I'm going to look at that list. I'm going to say, oh, I'm not as patient I'm not as kind there. I'm probably a little bit boastful. I, I'm really good at enduring. I'm really good at enduring. And so we sort of compare ourselves to this list. But Paul isn't writing us a to-do list. He isn't saying to the Corinthians, hey, you are consumed with yourselves. You're arrogant. Now stop doing it. And here's what you need to start doing. You need to start being more kind. You need to be, start being more patient and less boastful. Well, no, what does Paul do? Paul defines the word love. He doesn't say, instead, I want you to do this. He defines the word love. Love is patient and kind. And so let me ask you, is this, is this your definition of love? Like if, if you were writing without knowledge of what Paul writes here, your definition of love, what would it say? Maybe your definition of love would be not eating the last slice of pizza after dinner. Or maybe your definition of love is not saying what I really think of you in the moment. Would any of us have written this definition? No. It would not be possible for us to write this definition. We could never have written this. Because no created thing, no creature could ever dream up a concept of love this powerful. The reason why 1 Corinthians 13 is so beloved by Christians and the world at large is because it communicates a vision of love that is otherworldly. It is so beautiful, so extravagant, so costly, so pure that it still brings us to awe and inspires us today. This is love in its highest ethic. It has informed and brought insight and inspiration to every dreamer, every artist, every poet the world has ever seen. It is a love as only God can define it. And it is written through the inspired hand of the Apostle Paul. But more than that, it's a love that only God can display fully. Our scripture tells to us that our God is love. That's what our passage in our scripture says. God is love in 1 John. And so what we are reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is actually a vision of God himself. It's a definition of God himself, an embodied version of God, a God who knows us, who became like us, who can act and think and feel just like we do. Think about this. You can easily replace the word love in 1 Corinthians 13 with the word Jesus, and it makes total sense. That Jesus is kind and patient, that Jesus does not envy or boast, that Jesus bears all things, hopes all things. Paul is reminding the Corinthians of the kind of radical love that they once knew. And they once experienced in their conversion the love that they tasted when they professed Christ to be their king, when they came to faith that they have now forgotten. 
Paul is saying, this is what matters. And he knows, like he knows us, that those in Corinth, they're never going to desire to love by telling them what to do. It will only come through a rekindling and a remembrance of the kind of love that was once given to them, that was once given and experienced. It's to embrace the words of John in his letter to, in 1 John in chapter, first, chapter 4 that says this, we love because he first loved us. And that is our big idea today, that we love because he first loved us. One of the most condemning phrases in all of Scripture comes in the very last book of our Bible, in the letter of Revelation. There's an excerpt in that book written to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus is a church that's in judgment. And the letter was written to compel them to repent and turn back to God. And it's communicate that their, it's communicate that their judgment is solely based upon one thing that they have left their first love, that they have left their first love. All of their silliness, all of the calamity, all of their sin, all of their unfaithfulness flowed downhill from the moment that they forgot and left their first love. They have forgotten their love for Christ. They have forgotten his love for them. And it was the only thing that matters. And it is still the only thing that matters. Because once we forget God's love for us, everything else loses its proper place and perspective. Essentially, in Corinthians, this is Paul talking in a more positive and elegant way that you have lost your first love, you have left it, than we find in the book of Revelation. You've left your first love. You've made this life into something it shouldn't be. You've made it about yourself. You've corrupted yourself. You've corrupted the church And you know better than this. He implores them to remember that all of the things that you're seeking in this life, all of the things that you think are important, your prophecy, your teaching, your gifts, your tongues, look, they're going to go away. They're going to cease. And the only thing that will remain is love. Love never fails. Why does love never fail? Because God is love. And God has never failed us. And so there is in some sense... When we read 1 Corinthians 13, it's as if we're a fly on the wall during a family meeting, perhaps. Have you ever had a moment in your family growing up or maybe in your current family where things are just out of sorts? Something's off. There's an elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about. And somebody has the courage to say, hey, we need to talk about this. And you call a family meeting and you deal with the issue at hand. This is a family meeting between Paul and the church, reminding them and us where we go off track. Paul accuses them of acting like children. What does he mean in acting like children? Well, have, I don't know if, if you guys have been around kids lately. Like I, can t- I have, right? It's not a positive thing here. What, what, what is great about kids uh, is what makes this negative, uh, There's just a goofiness. Uh, There's a lack of understanding. There's a naivete that is endearing and it's innocent, but it's very simple. But yet the scripture tells us that that is actually a beneficial quality of faith, that we are to have a childlike faith. 
That we are to have this blind trust in our father as a child does of his parents because he doesn't understand the weight of the world. He just trusts. But in this context, Paul talks about being childish in a negative sense. It compels someone who is naive and misinformed about the very meaning of life. That like children, they are acting very selfish and acting in very silly ways. And Paul communicates this in the first person. He talks about himself. I was a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish things. And this has everything to do with Paul's conversion from a man named Saul. If you don't know in our scripture, Paul was known as a man named Saul. Saul was a devout Jew who persecuted the church, who hated the church, but then he met Jesus and everything changed, including his name. He said, I was a child, but then I became a man. Not like, I became a man. I shot a deer, right? No, he said, I became a man because I got the right understanding. I became a man because I knew what life was about. And we can find for ourselves what Paul knew and understood that made him a man. We can find it in the book of Philippians when he says, everything in life is rubbish. Everything else is trash compelled to the surpassing knowledge and worth of Jesus Christ. Paul says that the only thing that has ever mattered and will ever matter is the Lord himself. And so we find in this chapter that sometimes in our life, sometimes in our life, and this is probably true for all of us, is that we don't see things well. We don't see things well. Paul says that today we look at things dimly, like in a mirror, that we can't see well. But someday we will see face to face. We will, we will know all of the mysteries of life. Now we know in full or part, but then we'll know in full. In that day, mirrors weren't the kind of clarity that you have today. Mirrors were this rudimentary art at that point. You could see just faint images and, and objects in them. They, they weren't like we have today. And, and Paul is using this idea of seeing dimly in both a positive and a negative sense. That there are glories and wonders of Christ that we can never see, that we will never see until the fullness of time is revealed. There are splendors and glories that we can never see on this broken earth. They come to us as shadows, as faded understandings. And then on the negative side, we see dimly, meaning that we also don't fully understand the truth of ourselves. That we don't know how deeply deformed sin has made us. We don't know how deeply broken we are as a creation that shows themselves over God. And so what he's saying is you cannot see the heights of God's splendor, nor can you see the depths of your fall. When Mickey and I, we moved into our first home, after a few months, we wanted to do some projects. And uh, we decided that we wanted to update some wiring and some lighting. And I had seen that there had been some dimming of lights and some flickering of lights. But I opened up the light switch and I saw something that should never be in a light switch. I saw a wire that should never exist in a switch outlet. There was a small, thin, brown wire that wasn't meant to carry electricity, yet it was. And it was carrying it from the switch to our light. It became very aware to me in that moment that this was a very dangerous situation. But here's the thing. 
I was completely unaware of it until that moment. I saw the flickering, I saw the dimming, but when I was face to face with a wire that shouldn't be there, I just knew how dangerous the situation is. And what Paul is saying is that there are truths about God that if you saw fully, you'd never be acting the way that you are. And there are truths about yourself that if you knew fully, you realize just how dangerous you are to yourself. Spurgeon, he writes this. He says, if we knew more of our own sinfulness, we might be driven to despair. If we knew more of God's glory, we might die of terror. If we had more understanding, unless we had equivalent capacity to employ it, we might be filled with conceit and tormented with ambition. But up there, heaven, there we shall have our minds and our systems strengthened to receive more without the damage that would come to us here from overleaping the boundaries of order supremely appointed and divinely regulated. Some, in some fashion, in some way, Paul is saying to his friends in Corinth, you know better than this. Like, you know better than this. You have experienced God's love. You've experienced, the, know the truth that God came for you while you were yet a sinner. He died for you. They had experienced it but they had let the gap between who they saw God to be and who they saw themselves to be to dwindle. They saw themselves as more beautiful and they began to see God as less beautiful. And in that, we find a very great truth in our ability to love in this life, that we will never love the way that God intended us to love until we understand a love that was given to us through Christ that was so undeserving, so gracious, and so magnanimous that it floors us, that it humbles us. I think the, the Advent season is a great season of preparation because it reminds us of the extravagant and undeserved way in which God has loved us that we get to come and adore a God who left his throne, a king, a humble king that gave up his splendor and glory to come into this earth and humiliate himself in the form of a babe, to come in flesh to endure the struggle and the suffering of having to be dependent on a mother to feed him, to be tormented by the temptations of the world, to be mocked and despised and beaten and abused and then killed. He became like us in every imaginable way to redeem us in every imaginable kind of way. But yet that kind of love will not move us if we remain a child in the way we see ourselves. If we don't see a more humble, accurate version of ourselves in the mirror, the Corinthians thought too much of themselves and too little of God. And I think the truth is, is it can be said of us that we do the same thing. And sometimes, just like them, we have to call a family meeting. And we have to deal with the elephant in the room, don't we? There is a book in our Old Testament called Hosea. It's about a prophet, Hosea, that convey, conveys a very deeply accurate 
picture of humanity's character and their relationship with God. The Lord has Hosea marry a prostitute named Gomer. He asked him to take her as his wife. But Gomer kept wandering into the arms of other lovers. She was unfaithful. And yet the Lord told Hosea to keep going after her time and time again, to time and time again keep bringing her back home. Hosea is a picture of God, and Gomer represents us, God's people. God's people are intended to live faithfully in a covenant relationship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our God, and there should be no other gods in our life. Yet we consistently rebel against God through chasing after our own idols. Our history as God's people show it, and our individual history in this moment reveal to us our unfaithfulness. But yet, instead of just telling Israel of just how sinful they are and reminding them of just how determined God was to love them anyways, God sent us this beautiful illustration of Hosea and Gomer for us to remind ourselves who we are and who he is. Gomer keeps cheating on Hosea. She leaves him with the kids. She goes into the arms of other lovers, turning his back on him time and time again, spurning him and committing adultery again and again. And you would think it would produce a love that has limits. I don't think any one of us in this room would have looked down on Hosea for leaving that marriage. But the Lord had Hosea stay in that marriage. He wouldn't let him go. Why? Because Hosea was to be a picture of God's amazing love and faithfulness to a group of people who never returned that sort of faithfulness and love to him. Even when God's people turn their backs on him and run to the world to indulge in their pleasure, God's love doesn't quit. He doesn't give up. He endures. He doesn't look for a way out. He still pursues. How can we even begin to describe a love that is that deep? That is a picture of an unvarnished creation. Creation as it is. Unfaithful people who like to make life more about them, who are unfaithful to God again and again. But more important than that, it's a vision of an infinite God who has never, ever turned his back. We have nothing, nothing. We gain nothing. We get nothing if we have not love. But yet we cannot truly love unless we see the depths of God's love for us and it floors us and it humbles us. A love that is patient to us and kind, that does not envy or boast, that isn't arrogant or rude, that doesn't insist on its own way, that isn't irritable or resentful, that rejoices in the truth, that bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And so let us come to this season of Advent as we approach this magnanimous season of God coming into the world. Might we approach it asking God that he would stir in us a new understanding of his love and his grace for us that we might actually think less of ourselves and that we would think more of him, that we would see him as greater and ourselves as lesser. 
and that we might get a vision of a costly love that has filled the chasm between a humanity that perpetually chases after itself and the God that has never left them. Let us in this season come and adore him. Come and admire him for his love and his mercy and his grace that has never left us and is deeper and wider and more glorious than we have eyes and ears and minds to see. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you today just admitting, Lord, that we are, we are unfaithful. And we do forget our first love. And so, Lord, I pray today that you would kindle, rekindle in us a new love that finds its worth in your love. Because the scripture says that we cannot love. And the only reason that we can love is because of you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use this season to humble us, to floor us, to reimagine the ways in which you have loved us, to reimagine the ways in which we have fallen into you. Not that we would think less of ourselves, Lord, but that we would think less about ourselves and that we would think more about you and we would think more about your faithfulness and love to us. And so, Lord, we pray this in the beautiful name of Christ, our Redeemer. Amen.